Now let's turn our attention to the 13th chapter of Hebrews. And as we do, just a little bit of context, because I think it'll help you appreciate the import of this 13th chapter. We've been studying now for the last several months one basic argument is you're going to think, my word, Kyler, if it's this simple, why did you guys spend, you know, 10 months telling us about it? But it is almost this simple. The argument of chapters 1 through 10 of Hebrews is, in short, Jesus is better. Believe that. Just believe that Jesus is better than anybody or anything this world has to offer, which is why in chapters 11 and 12, he puts a finer point on it and says, if you actually believe this, trust him. Just trust Jesus. By faith, trust him. Which you could think that chapter 12 would be a fitting conclusion. That is the gospel after all. Believe Jesus. He's better than anybody. Trust him. Full stop. All God's people said amen. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 12, it seems like a fitting conclusion. But then you got chapter 13 tagged on, and it almost seems abrupt, as if it's changing tone. And what I want you to see is it's anything but that. For chapter 13 is, in essence, a third and final argument. Not only should we believe him, not only should we trust him, but chapter 13 says, if you believe him, and if you trust him, prove it. Chapter 13 is, in other words, an argument that our lives ought to reflect what we claim to trust. So if you found Hebrews 13, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word so that you don't take my word for it. I'm going to begin reading in the two verses concluding chapter 12. Let's begin in Hebrews 12 and verse 28, get a running start into chapter 13 and verse 1, and I hope you'll see the argument I'm making, that chapter 13 tells us how to fulfill chapters 1 through 12. Hear now the words of our God, beginning in Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, how do we do that? How do we offer this worship? Verse 1 of chapter 13 begins to tell us how. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, would you come and grip us with the question we ought to always ask? Having studied who you are, having affirmed this doctrine, this belief, this wonderful truth that you are better, having professed with our mouths that we trust you, oh Lord, we must therefore conclude, how then shall we live? Our lives ought to change. It ought to reflect what we claim to believe. And so, Lord, would you pierce our hearts with your word and help us to see how we should then live in light of this glorious trust. And I ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what would you say is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? How would you characterize that? How would you spot one in a crowd? How would you know? 
Would you say the mark of a Christian is the cross she wears? Not a bad answer. I mean, the cross is the universal sign of Christ. Is that it? Is it the creed he cries? Your profession, I believe. That tells me you're a Christian. Is the distinguishing mark the company you keep? Christians tend to spend time around other Christians. They tend to not run with the wrong crowd, so to speak. They, they take morality seriously. Is, is that the distinguishing mark of a Christian? You know, what's really wild is the Bible actually gives us a pretty clear answer to this question. What is the distinguishing mark? And the mark it offers is not what any of us would likely expect. You see, the Bible's portrait of the distinguishing mark of a Christian is not the cross she wears, it's not the creed he cries, it's not the company he keeps, it's love. Let that hit you. The indelible, determinative, unmistakable, distinguishing mark of a Christian is love. Don't take my word for it. This sprung from the lips of Jesus. Indeed, when he cried this out in John 13 and verse 35, it has been reverberating throughout the ages. When he said, by this all will know you are my disciples. When you, what? Love one another. We see this echoing throughout the New Testament. We see the Apostle Paul tell us most eloquently that if you have faith but do not have love, you basically have nothing. Have you ever thought about how crazy that is? He is in essence saying if you claim to trust Jesus, if you have faith in him, but you don't have love, you don't actually have faith. You got nothing. This echoes in the Apostle Peter when he says we ought to have brotherly love towards all because we have been born again. In other words, the fact that we're Christian proves means we will have brotherly love towards the other. They're not mutually exclusive. One follows the other. You can't have one without the other. We even see this in the Apostle John when John says most clearly, most uh, precisely, that if you claim to love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. Evidently, this echo did not just end in the New Testament. For in the early church, there was a great church father named Tertullian. And he once remarked that Christians in the early church were known around the Roman Empire this, by this one thing. Oh, see how they love one another. Now that ought to disturb us a bit. Because have you noticed this great cry of Christ that echoes through the New Testament and even in the early church history, that echo seems to be growing fainter and fainter today? You read church history and it seems to grow faint pretty quickly. You see terrible seasons like the Crusades, the Inquisition. Even in our generation, you surely have known individuals, perhaps your own family members, who tried to hold the gospel of Jesus Christ in one hand and human enslavement in the other hand and somehow, way, attempt to bring them together and say they coincide. It's insanity. Known by their love. You know this just from own personal experience. Who amongst us has not been at one time in a local church where instead of feeling love from one another, you felt disunity, discord, gossip? But lest you think it's everybody else's fault, and if only everybody loved like you loved, the world would be good, let's just take a look within for a second. I got to do the same. How many of us in this room truly could resonate with 
a Peanuts comic strip I once saw. Y'all know the Peanuts comic strip? Linus. One comic strip, he remarks, I love mankind, it's people I hate. <laughs> Y'all ever find yourself feeling that way? You love in theory, but in practice, eh, I, I could do without people. If that's you, I pray that you would lend your ear to this text. For Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1, is a repeat. It is an echo of Christ's great call that if you are my disciple, you will be known by your love for one another. It repeats this cry. It is in essence making this argument that if you believe Jesus is better, if you have indeed trusted him, you will show it by the way you love one another. In other words, I want you to see that the argument of Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 3, is that a life in Christ really is a life of love. Now notice I didn't say it ought to be a life of love or it should be a life of love. It is a life of love. One follows the other. That's the argument. In fact, if you notice with me in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 12, he says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, we ought to offer acceptable worship to God. And instead of saying, and all God's people said, amen, he begins in verse 1 and says, let me tell you how. And instead of saying, you come to worship and you give of your tithes and offerings and you're, you just do some good things around, he says, let brotherly love continue. Love one another. Now, let's interrogate that word love before we go any further, because what kind of love does he speak of? Love is the most misused, misquoted, misunderstood word probably in all the English language. What love does he speak of? You know this to be true, because who, what parent in this room has not had their child at one time say, I thought you loved me, when you refused to give them something they wanted for their own good? Wrong conception of love. Some of you have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend at one time who said, wait, don't you love me? I thought you loved me when you refused to give them something that was against your convictions. How many of you in this room have found yourself thinking or having been told, wait, I thought my friend loved me when they have a hard conversation with you about sin in your life they see? How many of you have withheld speaking truth to a friend because you want them to feel like you love them? My friends, is this the love God speaks of? Is this love? Is the love with which he's called us to, is this the love of the great slogan, love wins? Which is, in other words, a slogan that says, no truth ought to be had. Don't draw any hard lines. Affirm whatever anybody believes. That's the loving thing to do. You know, the truth is love will win, but it's not the love you love. That love God hates. I want you to see that the love that will win on the final day is the love that God loves. The love he has called us to is the love he loves. And this text, in my judgment, shows us how we ought to love with the love God loves. If you're taking notes, mark it down. I see five ways we ought to love with the love God loves. First, mark this down. The love God loves is sincere. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, he says, let brotherly love continue. That phrase, brotherly love, in the original language is but one word. It's Philadelphia. You know that word. We've got a city named after it. For Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's composed of two words, phileo 
which means a friendship, an affectionate type of love, and adelphia, brother. Now notice, that actually conflicts. It's a love that you would have towards a friend, not a family member, but is it, it is as if they are a brother, as a family member. Now let's stop for a second. This is why this command is tricky. When Christ calls you to love other people, other Christians, with a brotherly love, that's actually quite difficult to do. In fact, C.S. Lewis described this love as the most unnatural of all human loves. It's natural to have a romantic love. It's natural to have a familial love. It's hard to have a brotherly love towards somebody who's not a brother. Have you ever found that uh, we are prone not to treat friends like family? There's an unconditionality to your love you'd have towards your sibling or towards your child or towards your spouse that you're probably not going to afford a friend. Your child may break your heart. Your spouse may say something ugly. Your parent might do you wrong, but you'll eventually forgive them because there's just a love that abides. It, it feels unbreakable ultimately, but if your friend does any of those things, you'll cut the cord. Like, life's too short. I don't have to deal with this. How many of you have found yourselves in that state where you're saying, you know, the old song to worship with the saints uh, in heaven above? Oh, indeed, that's going to be glory. But to worship below with the saints you know, well, that's a different story. You ever feel that tension where it's like, gosh, I just, I love these people, but I don't really love them the way I love my family. And so it's weird when the Lord says, you ought to love other believers, the ones on this very row, with a brotherly Philadelphia love. Now let this sink into your soul. The reason we should is because the other believers in this room are in fact your family. Now don't let that go in one ear and out the other. In truth, they are as close as your own blood. Now they aren't born into the same bloodline as you. That's true. But in truth, all in this room have been born again into the same blood of Christ. We are literally united together as a family because of Christ. Do you know Philadelphia actually means literally from the same womb? We have both been born again. All of us have been born again into one new family of God by the blood of Christ. So we have a tie that binds that is genuinely stronger than even DNA. We are indeed united. Therefore, our love ought to be sincere, like the love you would have for a brother. So just ask yourself this question. Do you love your church? Now, I'm not talking about the preacher or the pastor you may love or even the programs, what your mind quickly comes to when you conceive of church. I mean the people, which is what the church actually is. The church isn't a facility, as you well know. It is a people. Do you love that? Put a finer point on it. When you say brother or sister in Christ, do you mean it? Or is that just a Christian adage? We call one another's brothers and sisters because that's in fact what we are. Ours is a brotherly or sisterly love one towards another. Oh, would you see that the love God loves, it is sincere. But did you notice there's a word I did not fixate on in this verse, which we must, for it says, let brotherly love continue, which leads me to conclude that not only is the love God loves sincere, it is secondly 
steadfast. Notice it says, let it continue. Maneto, stay, remain. Two things it's telling us. On the one hand, it is suggesting that Christians already loved one another this way. He is not saying, hey, y'all need to start doing this. He is recognizing it's already been happening, which, by the way, is not unique to Hebrews. You also see this in almost every letter the Apostle Paul wrote. If you go read his letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, I praise God for the love you have one for the other. If you go read his letter to Philemon, he praises God for the love Philemon has. If you see his letter to the church at Colossae, he praises God for the love the people of Colossae have, that church has. So too in Hebrews, he is saying, you already have this love, but let it continue. Inferring for us that it is easy for love like this to wane. Man, man, is that true. Have you ever noticed that it is far easier for your love to remain steadfast towards your child than it is towards your friend at church? Your child may do some of the most hurtful things to you, but there is a love that's going to abide. There is a love that is unconditional. It is steadfast because it's sincere. A sincere love, by definition, is not conditional. It is a love that is not based off what you get back in return. It is a love one way. It is saying, I am loving you. I am, in essence, covenanting to you. That's the type of love any good parent has for their child. It's actually the love we all commit to upon our wedding day. When I slid that ring on my wife's finger and Lauren slid that ring on my finger, we were committing to love and stay together despite how we felt in any given moment. It is an unconditional covenant. It is till death do we part. This type of love that you experience in your marriage, that you experience in your parenthood, this is the type of love he's actually calling us to with other Christians in the local church. That's why we use the language covenant membership. Joining the church should not just be like signing up for a Sam's membership. You're coming to this local church and you are saying, I am committing to steadfastly love the brothers and sisters in Christ in this room until the Lord providentially calls me elsewhere. I'm not coming and going to see what I can get out of it. I am coming to commit myself, to give of myself, to build up the body. I am covenanting with this body. That is the type of love Christ has called us to. It is a sincere love. Consequently, it is a steadfast love. But in verse 2, he illuminates for us another layer to this love. For he does not simply say, let brotherly love continue and move on to other topics. He puts a finer point on it. And in verse 2, he says, you need to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. Now, if you could read the original Greek, you're going to notice there's a play on words here. Philadelphia, brotherly love, is one word. Did you know that in the Greek, show hospitality to strangers is itself one word? And that word is, of course, not Philadelphia. It's philozenia. Phileo, love, xenia, stranger. You're surely familiar with this word. How many of you have heard on the news the phrase xenophobia or xenophobic? That is one who is afraid of strangers, others, foreigners, people that aren't like you, people that you don't know. Jesus is commanding us through Hebrews 
13 and verse 2 that Christians must be known as those who love strangers. Now, how do you do that? Because that sounds all well and good, but the type of love you have for your child, the type of love you have for a believer you know, is going to be different than the love you have for somebody you don't know, right? Like, like it's not possible to have those feelings towards somebody you've never even met or you don't know. So how do you obey this? How do you philizenia? How do you love the stranger? Well, that's why the word is precisely translated show hospitality. Hospitality is a word we know. It's a tangible way to show love towards one another. Now, this was a critical thing in this day and time. Hospitality would have been known by that original audience as something critical. For in that day, if you were traveling, you were going to be in a jam if you didn't have somebody show you hospitality. Hotels and inns were few and far between, and if you found one, it typically was inhabited with thieves and prostitutes, not where you'd want to go, in other words. So you needed to depend on people you didn't know showing you hospitality. Consequently, it's a command. In fact, if you go read Titus, Titus actually tells us that one of the qualifications of being a pastor, of being a deacon, of being a leader of God's church is to be hospitable, to tangibly show love to strangers. It's a critical thing. It's a commanded thing. Evidently, it was a common thing because Emperor Julian, one of the early emperors of the Roman Empire, do you know what he said? Remarking about Christianity exploding in his empire, he said, do you want to know what's caused this superstition of Christianity to grow more than anything else? It's the charity they have towards strangers. They take care of their poor and our poor. That's what the emperor thought of when he thought of Christians. Isn't that astounding? My friends, it is not only critical and commanded, it's not only common. Hospitality is a great caution to us. We must heed it carefully. For the Apostle John in 1 John 3 and verse 17 warns us, if anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Fearful, weighty words. Now what's interesting about this verse is there is a clause in it that I haven't really addressed yet, and it's the one most of you want to understand. Y'all read the latter half of verse 2? And you're thinking, okay, what does this mean? Because he just says, show love to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What do I do with that? Pastor, are you telling me that I need to show hospitality to people I don't know because if I do, I might be entertaining an angel? He's probably referring to Genesis 18, at least alluding to it, where in Genesis 18, Abraham entertained, showed hospitality to these three strangers and ended up being an angel. In fact, some would even argue it was a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ, a Christophany, although there's debate on if that's true or not. Is that what he's saying? Should you conclude that on your row right now, you look to your left and look to your right, that that might be an angel? Take a good look. That probably ain't true. What do you do with this? Let me say at first that I believe in the supernatural. I believe with every fiber of my being that angels are real, they minister amongst us, so I would not therefore conclude that's not true or impossible. Indeed, it very well may be. But let me at least add this layer. 
I think the import of this verse is not show hospitality because you just might be caught being inhospitable to an angel. I think the import is alluded to in Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Do you remember in Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you clothed me when I was hungry. You fed me when I was hungry. You got me out of prison when I was imprisoned. And they look at Jesus and say, wait, me? I didn't do that. I don't remember doing that for you. I don't remember doing any of this for you. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. When you did those things to the least of these, you did it unto me. I believe that illuminates the reason why we must be motivated to love with the love God loves that is sacrificial, that is hospitable to those we don't know is because when you do, it is as if you are doing it to the Lord. It is in truth an act of worship. It is one thing to sincerely love other Christians. It is one thing to steadfastly love other Christians. It is a whole other thing to sacrificially love people you don't even know. And he is saying, we must be marked by this, for when you do, it is as if you are entertaining angels unaware. It is as if you are doing it to me. You must love with the love I love because it is as if you are loving me. It must be a sacrificial love, a steadfast love, a sincere love. And I want you to see in verse 3, it is fourthly going to be the love God loves is a sympathetic love, which might not have been the word you expected me to use. Because if you read verse 3, it looks like basically the life verse for prison ministry. Look at verse 3. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you're also in the body. You might read that verse and just say, got it, I got to do prison ministry, and I got to remember the persecuted church. Those are two wonderful applications, and oh, we ought to take both seriously. But I don't want you to move too quickly past the two clauses that clarify, that qualify prison and mistreated. Notice what he says. He says, remember those in prison as if you are in prison yourself. Remember those who are mistreated since you are in the body. I think the point is this. You need to remember those who are suffering sympathetically, which literally means to suffer with, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. He is, in essence, calling us to do as the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, if a member of the body suffers, all of us suffer. This is Paul who calls us in Galatians 6.2 to bear one another's burdens. He is, in other words, saying you need to sympathize with the suffering. And the reason this point, I think, is made is because most of us in our room, in this room, stop short of that. Have you found that you tend to pity, not show sympathy? For example, you hear of suffering far away, persecuted church. You may shed a tear in the emotional moment of watching the testimony on the screen, but in general, you don't really weep with those who weep. You just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other and say, I hate that. 
You show pity. It's not like you rejoice in it. You just don't really suffer with them. You don't really feel it. You don't do much about it. Or you see suffering face to face. You leave church and you drive down Harris Boulevard. You see suffering on the side of the road. You've seen it so many times, you just pity. And you calculate, well, if I give, they'll probably use it for something that will only compound the problem. And you just kind of leave it there. You pity, you move on. You don't really suffer with. You go to your community group and you see the ever-growing list of concerns on the prayer request sheet. And you pity. Man, I hate that for them. But you don't really sympathize with them. It's as if you remember those who are in prison, but not as though you're in the prison with them. You remember those who are mistreated, but not as if you could be mistreated. It's just kind of an intellectual exercise of pity. And the reason that's so true is because all of us, myself included, struggle to sympathize with those who we haven't experienced what they're going through. Have you found it's just so much easier to sympathize with somebody if you've been through it yourself? So how do we do this? How do we remember those in prison as if we are in prison with them if we're not in prison? How do we sympathize with those who are mistreated if we ourselves haven't been physically mistreated? How do we do this? Well, I just want to suggest to you from my own experience, and so many of you could illuminate what I'm about to say in a host of better ways, but just from my own experience, because I'm not naturally the most sympathetic individual. Some are more sympathetic than others, just by personality type. But what I have found is at least these three things. One, pray regularly for a given individual. Have you noticed that if you actually make somebody a matter of prayer regularly, you can't help but think about them? And the more you pray for somebody, the more you start to feel what they feel. You actually start to weep with those who weep. There are people I pray for often that when something bad happens in their life, I can't help but feel it. I don't just pity. I like, I want to bear that burden with them. Oh, make them a matter of prayer. Which also means, secondly, you need to be intentional with them. Because all of us know that if somebody is out of sight, what happens? They're out of mind. You know that to be true, don't you? So to help fight against that human tendency, intentionally figure out ways to put the suffering in front of you. It may be your community group prayer sheet. It may be going to Voice of the Martyrs and looking at all the persecuted peoples around the world. It may be intentionally going after individuals you know that are suffering. Be intentional. But don't just stop with feeling. You may pray for them. You may intentionally remember them. But if you just come and say, let me cry with you, and that's it, remember, when Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, if you were indeed doing that, would you just, if you were suffering, just want somebody to weep about it and not try to do anything to alleviate it? Probably not. That's not how any sane person would love themselves. You got a headache, you're going to take a Tylenol. You got a broken arm, you're going to go to the doctor. You got some deep source of grief, you're going to seek help in some way, shape, or form. You'll try to make yourself happy. So if you were to love your neighbor as yourself, you must not just feel, you've got to act. Limited as your opportunities may be, we ought to show sympathy one to another by praying for one another, intentionally pursuing one another, and doing what is within our power to help alleviate any and all suffering we can. That, my friends, is the call of Christ to us. 
This is not a social gospel. This is actually the call of Jesus to us. A life in Christ is a life of love that's one of sincere love. The love God loves is sincere, it's steadfast, it's sacrificial, it's sympathetic. And upon hearing all of that, you may think, my word, I mean, this is true. I see it in the text as you proclaim, Pastor, but... I just am leaving this sermon feeling really guilty and heavy. I don't know how to do this. I, I want to do this, but I don't know that I can. This seems far-fetched. It seems idealistic. I don't know that you're living in the real world. How can I actually love other Christians like I love my own brother? How can I steadfastly love people that hurt me in the same way I steadfastly love my child? How could I possibly sacrifice the way you're describing I should for people I don't even know? How can I suffer with all the people I know that are suffering? How? You know, the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. Which is why we dare not close our Bibles this Lord's Day without noting one fifth and final way we ought to love what the love God loves. For the love God loves is not merely sincere and steadfast and sacrificial and sympathetic. In the final analysis, it's supernatural. For the love God loves is the love with which he loved us. Just consider the love he modeled and showed towards you and let it fill you this Lord's day. Consider the sincerity of his love towards you. Jesus, who saw you wicked, rebellious, sinful, depraved as we were, and the scripture says in Hebrews, he wasn't ashamed to call you brother. Think of that. He loved you with a brotherly love when you were not a brother of his. You were not a family member of his. You were an enemy of his. And he came and took you who were an enemy and adopted you, made you in the family and loved you like family. Consider the astounding glory of this love. Consider how steadfast his love was towards you. Despite years of serial unfaithfulness you and I have had towards him, his love has remained steadfast towards us. He has loved us despite our indifference towards him. Time and time again, a sincere, a steadfast love. Oh, see the sacrificial love he had towards you. Not just a stranger. The scripture says, even while we were still sinners, not just strangers, we were sinners. We were in outright rebellion. That's when he died for you. What a sacrifice he has made for you. Look to him. What love he has shown. Most sincere, most steadfast, most sacrificial, and praise be to God, most sympathetic. For we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, who knows you and knows every struggle of your heart and nevertheless loves you. You, consider this Jesus who died bearing the weight of your sin, who is mightily and triumphantly resurrected from the dead. For when you look to that Jesus, when you see him who so magnificently displayed the love God loves, then you will hear his call to you with new ears. Just let these words hit you anew, springing from the lips of him who loved you with a perfectly sincere, steadfast, sacrificial, and sympathetic love. 
love one another. For love is of God. He who loves is born of God and loves God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God is love. My friends, God is indeed love. Now, how do you do that? You've heard it and you're like, oh, I want to love like this. How can I? Oh, let 1 John 4 and verse 19 be emblazoned on the tablet of your heart, for it declares forevermore, we can love because He first loved us. If you want to love the way God loves, if you want to love with the love God loves, if you want your life to be a life of love, if you want to model your Lord with sincere, steadfast, sympathetic, sacrificial love, heed this final plea. Hickory Grove, you will love others best when you love God most. Put your mind to loving your Lord who so beautifully, perfectly loved you. For we love because He first loved us. Oh, may this church be known by their love. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as if you're in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated as you were in the body. Oh, let's love one another in this world, and we will do so best when we love Him most. Join me now as we pray. With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord, I trust you're not altogether different from me upon hearing the call of Christ to you, it is reverberated down to your heart, and you can't help but cry out in repentance, oh God, forgive me for how loveless I am. Would you grant me the grace to sincerely, steadfastly, sacrificially, and sympathetically love one another? In just a moment, John is going to lead us in a song of response. As he does, we'll stand and sing together, and the call to you is to come down here and pray. We conclude our services this way as a tangible way for us to respond to the gospel proclaimed. You come down here. There are men down here at the front, pastors who are here to pray with you. You come down and pray. And if you have not tasted and seen this love of Christ, oh, would you hear this final plea. God loves you. And He is calling you to heed this precious promise that He so loves you that He gave His Son Jesus for you, that if you just believe in Him, you will not die, but have everlasting life. So come with the rest of this church. Come pray with a pastor. Cry out to Him and watch His love radically transform you. Father in heaven, do this. I can't. Do it, I pray. By the power of Your Spirit, come and renew every heart. That Hickory Grove, that I would be known and marked by my love, by our love. Oh God, we want to love with the love you love. So may we be reminded of the matchless love of Jesus and go and love likewise. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you
stand to your feet. As we stand and as we sing, the invitation to you now is to come.